0: Why is it we humans get romanced by complexity when the answers can be found at a simple and practical level? This
1: is the Simply Practically Human Podcast, where the human manager Mark Labasque features experts who have a track record in humanizing workplaces, using simplicity
0: and practicality as their go-to approach. It's all about getting back to what it is to be human and watch workplaces thrive rather than just survive.
1: Hey there, it's Mark LeBusk for the Simply Practically Human podcast, and in today's episode, I was delighted to be joined by the founder of Stone Changes, Jay Stone, all the way from uh, the UK, and uh, I was fortunate enough to meet Jay on a uh, really something that's come about because of COVID. It's a session that Oscar and Richard out of uh, Hong Kong run called Drinking Dialogues or Coffee and Cocktails, where... People from around the world just jump on and we just have conversations about particular topics, maybe working from home or, you know, the future of leadership or anything like that. And I just remember in the very first one, as we got sent into a Zoom breakout group, I was in with Jay and um, she just called it as she saw it. She was so open and honest and, and sharing about herself. And I just thought, wow. I'd love to uh, get to know more about her and get her onto, uh, onto this podcast. So she joined me today, and we've sort of covered some ideas around change, and Jay works in this space, certainly understands the hard wiring of human beings and how that impacts on change. And in particular, she's going to delve into the murky waters of micromanagement today, in particular, give some great tools and tips on how to be more aware of those micromanaging behaviors that you have. And even as a, a bigger tip is for people who feel like they're being micro managers, how they might be able to address that with with their manager. So that's a super tip to pick up. Have a listen to this one. Jay's amazing. She's got so much energy. It was so good to uh, record this with her. Uh, as I always say, grab yourself a pen and a pad, take down some notes. You'll pick up some amazing things here and enjoy. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the founder of Stone Changes, Jay Stone. Hey, Jay, thanks for joining me. Hey, Mark,
0: it's a real pleasure
1: to be here. Now, listen, I always start with I'm, I'm big into this connection piece. How did we connect?
0: So we actually connected on, it's kind of like a bit of a mastermind, I describe it. It's this group that came together, organisational development specialists, you know, change specialists, consultants, and it was on drinking dialogues, a fantastic group. And we kind of came together. I think we connected quite well, quite quickly, because I think we kind of got to the core of things quite quickly. There was none of this messing about. We kind of broke down formal barriers and really got to the core of problems, and I think there was an element of like vulnerability in it, an element of just talking truth and leaving out the BS, basically. Yep. So I think it it all started then.
1: Yeah, I remember I think I remember the first caller, because because we sort of get for those who are listening, we get broken off into different groups. And I think we might have been in the same group a couple of times that night. And I remember coming off the call thinking. And you said it, there was no bullshit from you at all. I was like, I like this. I like the approach. And then I've heard a bit more of it. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here, because you've got such a a great background in change and understanding human hardwiring, and we'll get a bit into micromanagement as well. But before we go there, given this is about humans as well, let's start with you, the human being. I'd love you to share a bit of your backstory, because I've read something about you did you catch a piranha in your hands at something at one stage? Is that right?
0: <laughs> so in the Amazon, we, my husband and I, we went travelling for a year last year. Actually, we, just, we came back just as COVID-19 hit and we spent some time in the Amazon. And it was actually a joke that the guide played on me because he kind of threw it at me, but it was already dead. But I did catch a piranha with my bare hands. It's just <laughs> that the piranha wasn't alive. I did think it was though. So, hey, I caught it
1: thinking that it was alive. When I read that, I read that it was your team and you all had a funny story and I read that and I thought, wow, I had this idea that you'd put your hand into the water and just pulled one out of the water there. So Not that
0: courageous, but still a good
1: story. So give us a bit of your backstory. So, you know, a little bit about where you grew up and what you used to like to do and maybe how some of your sort of early days have influenced you to get into this space of change. Yeah,
0: I think it's important. To speak some truth here, you know, I became fascinated about change and human hardwiring and how we can thrive in adversity because it's been a big part of my life. I had a, a bit of an unconventional upbringing. My dad was in prison for most of my childhood and my mum raised five children on her own. So we grew up with criminals for uncles. We grew up with, you know, drugs being a common theme of conversation. And, you know, we, we knew the police well. <laughs> <laughs> obviously we were not without masses of love and company with um I've got four siblings, but when my dad was in prison, we were as poor as you can be in the UK without being homeless. So I think I grew up with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of chaos and scarcity. And I think mum was our constant, right? She was our certainty. She played a huge role in my life, but we kind of fast forward to about seven years ago, I think I was 25. And she passed away from breast cancer.
1: Oh, sorry to hear that.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. I I just think that that certainty that we all so relied on kind of disappeared in an instant. And for anyone who's kind of experienced that type of loss before, it, it can be a really weird bubble of grief. And I think I was in that for about two years. I can't really remember those two years, which is quite interesting. I think that gave me a real interest in understanding the psychology behind the challenges we face. And it was sort of soon after that, that my company went through a huge period of change, right? Restructures, people being laid off, and it really pulled the rug from under me. And I think it impacted me, this experience impacted me because I I saw formidable and inspiring leaders who I admired and who had worked loyally, right? Loyally for this company, worked their butts off weekends, working harder and harder, and they were worn down to exhaustion and made redundant anyway. And I think I just experienced how vulnerable change and uncertainty made me and others. And I think at that point, I just said, I'm never going to feel like that again, right? No matter what happens, I'm never going to be in that position. So I think that that in terms of my upbringing has played such a huge role in why I'm interested in, in this kind of area and making sure that we, we do it better, right? Right.
1: Yeah look oh, thanks for sharing there's so much that you just shared then and I loved that you said look just I'm going to say it as it is and, and you certainly did that so what a what an upbringing and then to lose your mum as you said and someone who was there for you and 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 then getting into you know organizational life and and I know today you know you run a, a, an amazing little business there on helping people to navigate through change and in particular I, you know reading some of your stuff there's a big focus on helping women through that is that. Would that be right? Is, is that something that you focus on a lot? What, what's sort of driven you down that pathway?
0: Well, I found that the experiences I had of change and uncertainty, I found that women, and this is my own experience, that women seem to be impacted far more Right. And I don't know whether that was because that was kind of my friendship group or that was what I was surrounded by, but the women, be, you know, it was the women being made redundant or, you know, it was the women's roles that were being affected. And so I kind of got interested in that. And I suppose that triggered an interest in kind of female empowerment and looking into that. And when I started looking into the research, some scary research actually in the UK that shows that 12.8 billion working days are lost due to work related stress depression, professional anxiety. A huge portion of that, so the primary cause of that is workplace change. And so the research actually backed up that women tend to be affected, especially by technology change, so change that's driven by technology, because it's their roles that tend to be the ones that are automated. And women are more impacted by this burnout or stress-related illnesses because they tend not to be in the positions of power and decision-making. So they have less of that sense of control. They're less involved in what is changing, how it's changing. And so collectively that has a wider impact on women. And so that sort of became the focus of my work and especially working with female managers because they play this really tricky role of being squished in between executives, And kind of the pressures of dealing with that whilst also having the pressures of having to lead their teams. And I know that you agree with me on this because I think I read a post of yours recently about, you know, many managers, many leaders, in fact, actually going into these management positions with one, potentially not even wanting to be a manager. Right? The only way you can progress in this world is by doing a completely different job to what we're actually good at, our technical skill. And so I feel like they're in a really, really tricky place. So it became the focus of Stone
1: Changes to work. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, certainly a, there's a simple question that I ask my clients, Jay, which is, do you ever ask someone or did anyone ever ask you if you wanted to manage another human being? And they're like, no one's ever said yes, ever. And, it's, and I guess that the system is created in such a way that we almost force people through reward and to go into people management roles. And then, like you said, mainly women, but also men at times get squished into something where it's like, that's just where you need to fit. And because let's get into this idea of change and human hardwiring, I love this idea as well, because we're a survival species. We might think that if we don't fit, then we won't survive. And, and so people just go where they're sometimes where they're put. Is that, is that a fair summation? What's around your ideas on hardwiring and the way we're wired as humans? Why is it that we just sort of take what's put in front of us in the in the workplace?
0: In terms of hard wiring, right? I think if we look at that on a fundamental level, our brain is deterring us from doing anything different, any form of change or uncertainty, right? Any unknowns, and it's going to resist because, as you say, you know, going back to when the brain was formed to our hunter-gatherers, the idea of change and uncertainty and unknowns meant death. Okay, so our brains have evolved in that way. So it's quite clever in that it feeds us these insecurities, these excuses in order to deter us from this unknown, from this uncertainty, from being eaten by a lion essentially. So that's what's happening on a fundamental level and then you get to that insecurity level. So then there's too many insecurities that are coming into play and then that's driving our behaviour. So we don't question the status quo. We don't challenge. We don't say how things can be run in a different and better
1: way. It's interesting, you know, because that's all part of fitting in. This whole idea, you know, at times when people say, I've heard this so many times, oh, they're not quite fitting in here. And it might be because they ask questions and they're curious and maybe they they rub up against management at times in a way that they challenge them. And, and you know, I love that idea of, our brains are wired to help us survive and that doesn't matter now like you know we're just we've gone from caves to offices <laughs> yeah. and there's I keep saying to people it's the same stuff going on for us people it's nothing's changed in the way that we're we're formed even though someone did argue the point with me on this not long back that we've we've evolved significantly <laughs> in that space and I I wonder about that which brings me to this topic we're going to talk a bit about today and and it, it really fits in nicely i got some stats on Micromanagement. I I'm, I'm, can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. From an article called "The PA Times," and it talked about as far as micromanagement went, sixty-nine percent of people who felt like they were getting micromanaged considered changing jobs, and thirty-six percent of those people actually changed jobs. Seventy-one percent of the people who were interviewed said that it interfered with their efficiency in their work and effectiveness, and eighty-five percent said that if I'm micromanaged, that morale was negatively impacted now if we go back to wanting to survive and be in control i sort of get why micromanagement happens but if there's any micromanagers listening to this today and i'm sure that there are maybe they're in denial but they really are what would be one or two or three tips you could give them to step out of being a micromanager
0: i think this is an interesting one because um uh, recently, I, I've been coaching a few people and obviously we're in, we're in a period of huge change on uncertainty, right? So we're seeing things on mass scale and it's almost terrible to say, but it's a great case study. You know, we're, we're learning a lot from this experience and one of the things that's coming up quite a lot in terms of the managers that I'm coaching is them getting annoyed about the micromanaging they're receiving from MDs and their executives. But interestingly, through coaching, what we've identified is how much they're micromanaging their people. So what's interesting is we don't like being micromanaged, but we don't know that we're doing it ourselves. So this is a fundamental issue because we don't realize it's happening. So what we need to recognize is that we're survival-focused, right, which means that when there's lots of change and uncertainty happening, we will try to gain back as much control certainty and choices we can as much control as we can so what happens is we micromanage the small stuff because we can't manage and control the big stuff okay so if you just accept that that is a fundamental truth in the neuroscience and, that in, and understanding that then you can begin to kind of get on that level of acceptance that actually on, on every level everyone is going to kind of turn into micromanager at some point and how can we mitigate that and in order to mitigate that, we then I need to understand, okay, well, what happens when our brain feels threatened? So when we feel a threat, you know, there's lots of biological things that happen. We know that our brain feeds us with all these insecurities. We know that we get anxiety and those feelings in our chest. So how can we reduce that reaction, manage that reaction, so that we are actually dealing with the reality? Because essentially, it's an overreaction. Our brain thinks we're in threat. threat. To the extent that it thinks we're being physically attacked, and that's how our body responds. It responds. Most people have heard that freeze. I won't go too much into it, but your body obviously reacts in certain ways in order to fuel the fight or the flight. So we need to manage that, and we need to create. Essential thing is creating calm practice, and you can do that in various ways. I mean, when somebody said this to me as well, I've got to say, like I grew up you know, fighting, okay? You know, my background shows it. And, you know, when I first started delving into this and people were talking about getting in touch with my emotions, I've got to say, it really started to piss me off. <laughs> but it's so true. You know, this managing our emotions, managing the insecurities and the negative self-talk that our brains are feeding us to deter us, all of this stuff is some of the really basic stuff we can do. But I think a really practical, I think my first kind of practical tip would be that if our brains crave control and familiarity, then we need to give it that element. We need to give it a sense of control. So we can do this simply by focusing on the things that are within our control. Okay, and this is simply make a list of the things that you're concerned about. And that list will probably contain lots of things that you... Can't control, but those are things you're concerned and those are things that are kind of come up in your brain. And then make a separate list of the things related to those that you have direct influence over, okay? And base your goals, base your actions on those things.
1: I love that. Too. Um, the old control, the controllables is something that I hear quite a bit people talk about, that, you know, control what you can and not don't try and control what you can't control. So that's a great first one. What, what, what else have you got for us?
0: Well, I think it moves on to what can you then do for others as a leader or a manager? And essentially, it's the same thing. Give away as much control, certainty, and choice as you possibly can and put an onus on progress being made in those areas because for the same reasons as a manager or a leader, even as a parent, right, Their children are experiencing this uh, and they're feeding off the anxieties around them. So you need to ensure that you're supporting those around you to manage their own stress response by giving them a sense of control. And in terms of something really, really practical that you can do here, instead of creating the team rotor, design it with your team, design it with your family, okay? Another thing is if you're feeling insecure about what your team are capable of, or you're just not sure, you know, the, the whole kind of working remotely thing is, yeah, a whole new world for most people, Start having really frank conversations about expectations, okay? What I expect of you, what you expect of me. How often do you want to be updated? How? Don't overdo it. But also, psychological contract that you have with your employees is just so important. So lay that all out on the table. And I've heard managers say, you know, expectations, it sounds so harsh, almost like, how can I tell them what I expect? But actually, not telling them is not doing anyone any favors and give them an opportunity to tell you what they expect.
1: There's an interesting thing here. I have a, um, in my first book, and I, I live and die by these, when I was a manager, I had my first five questions. I used to send them to my new team members and I'd say, come and tell me your story. And the very first question was, what do you expect of me? And, and I just think you hit on such a great point here. Human beings are sense-making species as well. If we can't make sense of what expectations are, well, then we start to get into that bad news filing cabinet that you talked about before. It's that old idea of I start to pull stories out of insecurities and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so, you know, a sim- the simplicity of clear expectations, and, and sometimes this means challenging conversations, but people just need to know, don't they? Absolutely. I think
0: it's like challenging conversations that people struggle with. Oh, I don't like conflict. And I don't want to create conflict. And actually, you can disagree without being disagreeable, right? Mm. You can approach a conversation and challenge what somebody said without criticizing them. And that does come down to your ability to, you know, frame things in a certain way and build your own emotional intelligence and your own self-awareness in terms of where these comments are coming from. But it is very, very possible to do. And I think that we can't, as leaders, shy away from those conversations. We have to. If we have chosen to be a manager, to be a leader, it is our responsibility to train ourselves in being able to have those conversations.
1: So there's something around... List on what you can control, letting go and letting others understand what they can control. And you also spoke about the expectations. What else is in your mind as you're putting your finger up that I can see, but no one else can? You've got something else on your mind. Tell us.
0: And there's so much that I wanted to say, but I think these are the real core ones. And I think the third one for me would have to be trust and truth. So give your team the why and the what, and let them do the how. Right? So you need to trust them to do the how. And we have to create an environment, we have to engineer an environment of trust and truth. It doesn't just come, and it certainly doesn't come out of words. If people don't feel safe to talk about the mistakes, how they're really experiencing things, about failures, because we've created you know, maybe we've created an environment where you know we only talk about positivity. You know, this is just a positive team. Okay, we lose out on opportunities to address things early on. Okay, it's doing nobody any favors, right? And I've seen this done really, really badly before where like, you know, managers through their words are saying, you know, it's okay to make mistakes and failure is okay. But through their actions, like gossiping about said mistakes, passive aggressive staff announcements, where they've talked about nameless and faceless people who have, you know, oh, you know, this has happened. But actually just having frank conversations about those things are going to be far more effective. You're not doing anyone any favors by hiding them, shielding them from facing up to their mistakes, facing up to their failures and teaching the ability to turn that into learning. You're losing all of that information. And the thing is, if we can't react as leaders, respond quickly to things, that's where you get the issues, especially when everything's changing so much.
1: Great practical tips there. Now, here's one I'm going to throw at you without notice, but I know you'll Smash this one out of the park easily. So here's, here's the thing. I am not a manager. I am an employee and I'm being micromanaged. What advice could you give to that employee other than leaving the business if they wanted to stay because they enjoyed it? What advice would you give them? Just one thing they might be able to do to help their manager getting out of that micromanagement sort of approach?
0: Yes, I love this one because I've sat in it. And let me be frank, right? I can only speak about all of these things because I've made mistakes in all of these things myself, right? And I've experienced it. So I think having been the one being micromanaged, I think understanding on a human level what that was about ultimately in terms of understanding that's what's happening in our brains, understanding that people respond in this certain way during crisis and they need this control. I think that's an important element to acceptance and kind of looking at it not from the point of view of my manager you know is putting me down, they're keeping me in the box. Because from that point of view, you can't do anything about it. You're giving up your power. You're kind of finger pointing outwards. But by understanding that this is the way our brains work and there's some psychology behind this, How can you alleviate their concerns, their anxiety? Because that's ultimately what we're all experiencing. So how can you help? Maybe you can have the conversation, set up a conversation about expectations. You know, I've really noticed that you're looking for a lot of information from me and I want to be able to give it to you in the form and in the way that you need it so that you can do what you need to do. I think also sometimes... Gossiping about our managers is never going to end. Okay, that's an important part of connecting as a team. It is. And as leaders, I think we also accept that, that that's going to happen. But I think that we need to have those frank conversations with our bosses. But we need to see that they are under pressure as well, right? You are stressed. You have loads of stuff going on. And sometimes it's hard to see outside of that, outside of yourself. And, you know, we all get it but understand that they are also getting pressures from up above. So how can you, this is something you can do practically, how can you alleviate some of that, right? How can you step into their shoes? Because all humans are looking for is to be understood, including your boss. Your boss just wants to be understood. It's probably quite a lonely place. They would never admit that. But if you can alleviate those things... I think you can start to help them to build that trust. It's a hard place to be in, but yeah.
1: They're great tips because there'd be certainly people who would be facing up to that. Now, particularly in the times you mentioned before, Jay, the times that we're in, one of the things that's become common is that, particularly when COVID first hit, is people just became human again. It was like, almost titles, even though, you know, hierarchies and people had to make decisions and whatnot, what I saw really early, which was amazing, was we actually all started to look at each other from a a human level, so building deeper connection, getting to know each other in a different environment. And I think the other thing that came from that was building that stronger sense of belonging. And it didn't matter if you were the manager or the boss or the leader or whatever we call it. It was like we're all in this, we're all working through it, and all of a sudden... Um, it was happening to all of us. I think sometimes in change, I think you would have felt this as well, a lot of times you feel like change is being done to you. But with this thing, everyone copped this. It wasn't didn't matter if you were the CEO or the chairman or if you were the transactional manager on the floor. We are all getting the same thing, weren't we?
0: Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, belonging is such a powerful thing because I think it goes back to what we've been talking about survival, right? To belong is within our fundamental wiring because to be – Outside of the tribe meant danger. So it's why the fear of rejection, being criticised, cuts deep. It cuts deep because it's part of our hard wiring. Because if we're being criticised, if we're being left out, if we're rejected, then it means we're being cut off from the tribe, and that means death. So this sense of belonging is such a powerful thing. And I feel like it's massively underutilised in business. And actually, exactly what you're saying, Mark, I was excited by what was happening on this connection level this sense of belonging and people were kind of coming together and doing things that i don't think we've seen before now how can we continue to harness this okay because we've identified how important it is for our survival it's important for our well-being because if we don't feel like we belong we're part of that unit that we begin to feel threatened and, and so on so how can we harness this as businesses as leaders as managers and continue to bring this in Because I think from my experience, you know, loads of people have experienced this, right? We talk about silos, we talk about cliques, we talk about all of this stuff that actually it's not just affecting relationships, it's affecting our organizations, our people. It cuts across our well-being, our health, our happiness, our productivity. Research now is showing that social cohesion, you know, those coffees that you were really, you know, reluctant to pay for, those conversations are vital for productivity. 50%, I think some of the research is showing 50% increase in productivity for teams who have those conversations and those social uh, gatherings that, you know, they flirt around work, but essentially they're just about bringing people together.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think that is work. So, We've got to reframe what work is, and there's technical work, which is important, and it's the process and all of those things. And then there's the work you've just beautifully described, which is the work of, like I used to do with my team, 9.30 on a Monday morning, we'd disappear out to a coffee shop, we'd sit around, and no one had to, it was not, you don't go first or second, you just sit and listen if you want. But the deep connection and the strong sense of belonging that it builds with the team, that's work. And when someone says, oh, you've been out for coffee again, it's like, no, 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 we've actually been out doing the work, what I call the work of human, which is pretty simple work and leads me now into my, I guess this is my little Dorothy Dixer question I ask everyone about complexity and simplicity. So for me, this human stuff, it seems pretty simple, connection and belonging, go and have a coffee, speak to your people, be present, Do you know, simple stuff. For some reason, we humans are trying to make this stuff complex. And I wonder if you have a thought that you could share with us around Why are humans romanced and drawn to the flame of complexity when the answers, as you said before, are pretty simple answers? What has drawn us to complexity, do you think, Jay?
0: Let me answer it from my experience, right? I think it comes from an element of insecurity, right, because I think things become more complex when there's misalignment in understanding priorities at executive level, and that kind of leaks down. But I think it's as a result of our need to prove ourselves I need to be experts and have all the answers. And this is especially the case for managers and leaders and especially high pressured environments like in a crisis right We feel pressured as leaders to have all these grand and often convoluted strategies and models to ensure that we can deliver you know stakeholder value or whatever it is. And so I think we, we, we feel like we need to have all these answers. But I think in these times where I've seen it manage well, change manage well, crisis manage well, is when we kind of capture that vital information that's happening on the ground. Because I think that when people don't feel like their voices and concerns are being heard, and this is both I'm talking about from a customer level and also from a, an employee, especially an employee level, which I don't think we've spent enough time focusing on, they revolt, right? Yeah. I've seen it. I've been one of the people to revolt. I've been one of them that have dug my heels in and, you know, I, I'm not moving and I'm gonna. F things up if you try and make me, you know? And, and so again, I'm just talking from experience. I often saw, I got into this field and I love working with leaders because what I say is that I know what's happening on the ground because I've been there. I know it and they're so distant from it that they can't see how it impacts and how it festers and how the rot continues to just kind of grow if they don't address it right as a core. So... I think what's important instead is that we need to just ask questions, right? Let's simplify it, as you say. Like, Let's ask questions instead of going in with these grand visions and answers.
1: I think you picked it up beautifully, proving ourselves, being experts. You know, the old being the smartest person in the room still seems to be a contest that people want to win when really if we ask questions of others, we'll get the answers that that we want. Let me finish up with where do we get in contact with you?
0: I think the best place is LinkedIn. You can find me at, at J Stone Changes, and I would be delighted to connect and talk more, and you know, ask questions. Let's ask questions of each other. The team and I are currently working on a program that will be running again shortly. So this is um supporting female managers to thrive amidst uncertainty and lead their teams through change. So how can they kind of navigate their own careers but become leaders in the making of it?
1: And is that a program that? anyone can access that online, is it an online program or an in, a face-to-face program? So
0: it would be an online program, so it's um, a six-week class. Now the unique part of this is it's not just information we do a short video of a class and then we get the kind of group coaching element and you actually get one-on-one coaching with me as well and the whole point in stone changes is that I found coaching when I got into coaching I've got to say I found it a really kind of elitist space to be in right it was expensive and even I was one of the youngest to train as a coach I did corporate executive coaching so you can just imagine I just found it a very sort of exclusive community and everything about stone changes is about it being inclusive about it being accessible and affordable for managers and i want to get it into the hands of female managers because i've seen how powerful it is in terms of our lives in terms of our careers so incredibly affordable so the program the first time we're doing it is at 397 pounds which is incredible considering six weeks of content coaching you know group coaching so you can find more information that will be coming up on my linkedin shortly that's a really exciting thing we're working on and do keep an eye on the website so www.stonechanges.com
1: i love it hey from starting our conversation with you catching a live piranha in the amazon to now talking about these amazing programs that you're going to run i've had a ball i'm so glad that i got you to come on to the podcast and i just wanted to say thank you very much
0: Mark, it has been honestly such a pleasure and I look forward to more of these chats.
1: What an episode that was. Jay sort of blew me away early on when she talked about her upbringing and, you know, dad being in prison for most of her life and brought up by her mum, five kids, you know, four uh, siblings and literally saying that they they knew the police for the wrong reasons. And she literally said, as we are hardwired to do, she had to fight. She had to fight for a lot of stuff in in her life early on and and it got her, particularly after she lost her mum to breast cancer, got her thinking about just what she wanted to do with herself and and how she wanted to change. So she spent a lot of time understanding the neuroscience of change, the way our brains worked and now today she runs a successful consultancy working with particularly females and helping females navigate their way through change. Now, those simple and practical tools and tips today, control the controllables. Think about what you can control and focus in on that. Write a list of things you can't control and just let that sit. Give away control if you're a micromanager. Give some control back to your people. Let the work get done where the work gets done best. And the other one that I really loved, and she was you know very honest and frank as she went through the whole episode, but... Be really clear of what expectations you have for your people and allow them to share their expectations with you. So many great tips as we went through this. Even the last one when she talked about, you know, spending time having a coffee with your people and just getting to know them, building deeper connection, building a stronger sense of belonging so you can let go of that control that you feel that you need to have. Hey, if you like this, why not rate it five stars? And if you loved it, share it with your friends. And until next time, keep it simple. Keep it practical and keep it human. Bye for now.